The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey everybody, welcome to the live cinematography podcast here from Cine Beer 2019. All right, we have an amazing guest that, uh, so we're going to talk for probably half hour, 40 minutes, whatever, and then uh, we will be able to open up the, uh, the floor to questions when we're done. Our uh, guest today is Checo Varese. Varese, Varese. Varese, but Va- you did it right. Varese. Ah, anyway, uh, amazing cinematographer. He's got a, he's got a, a super compelling, awesome story, and uh, I, I hope that you all draw some amazing inspiration. So before we even get into your story, I, I just want to start with my stock question, which is always, I hand you a script, you read it. Do you see, like, composition, or do you see lighting? So... The process is different on any any of us. Uh, my process is a little bit more complicated. I read the script three times. So the first time I read the script as a piece of literature, and then I get involved in the story. The second time I read the script, I read it as a movie. So I try to imagine what is happening. And only the third time I read a script, I grab a pen and I go, oh, this is going to be a crane, this is going to be dark, this is going to be bright, whose story is this? And um, that's how I approach it. So to answer your question shortly, I don't know. <laughs> so when you're, looking at, when you're looking at a script and, you, uh, on your, and you're on your third reading, I think the third reading is the one that I'm most interested in. Uh, what, is it about a speci- what, is it, what is it that you're looking for to, to kind of hang your hat on uh, for visual signals, for, for a visual signature for the film, for you know, the kinds of ideas that you want to try out? Assuming we, the director and I haven't had any conversations about it, my guessings are usually character-driven. Mm-hmm. When, is, when is this character joining the arc of the story or what is happening with the arc of the story at any given moment? Yeah. Um, and at that point, I look for moments that make me feel something um, as a cinematographer one of the, the things that I try to avoid as much as I can is to to make the the screen drip with honey and milk because people get fed up very quickly with that you mean like overproduced over over overanalyzed over but at the same time it's it's very dangerous to to, let, to leave the audience dry. So yeah. you, have to, you have to keep them engaged constantly. So that's the, that's the trick. You have to definitely try and pick every single moment by which you can deliver the story or deliver the script and the character feeling. So uh, I'm going to return to your, what you're saying there about keeping it from dripping honey but keeping people engaged. Uh, but before we go into that, I want to go into your, into your background because you have a fascinating background. So you started as a war photographer, a war cinematographer, correct? Yes, I highly suggest not to follow my path. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I was a camera assistant in documentaries for a couple of years and then 
Um, Did you have any schooling in that beforehand? No, uh, my my background is an architect. Okay. I studied architecture. I was an architect. I, I was uh, graduated from architecture school, and I came back to my homeland in Peru, in Lima, in the economical crisis, 348 of the decade. Nobody was building anything, and a friend of mine said, "Do you want to work in adventure travel?" Uh-huh. And I'm like, "Adventure travel? Are you gonna pay me?" <laughs> of course. What do you think? Um, <laughs> And the first, very first job I got with this company was as a, like as a driver slash fixer for National Geographic that were doing a documentary. Uh-huh. And, um, and three days later, they needed a camera system, so they taught me how to be one, and that was it. For two years, I did but 29 is, is, documentaries. Is, it, is adventure travel just kind of a euphemism for you're going to get shot at at some point? Well, not really, but maybe. <laughs> I uh, how 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 deep in, in, no, into the I, shit did you find yourself? No, no, no. It was completely documentary. Okay. And then I moved to Washington D.C. thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna conquer America and I'm gonna be the best AC for National Geographic there is. And uh, the regime changed, and I was looking for work. And a friend of mine said, there is this small company out of Atlanta called CN something. CN <laughs> CN I don't know CN something. So I went to CNN building in 1984. Oh, wow. And um, I knocked the door. They opened the door. I had a meeting with a producer, and they needed a cameraman in El Salvador, which at that point had a war. And uh, here I am 30 years later. I did 14 years of war correspondent, not for CNN, as a freelance for everyone. I traveled the world, and that's in a nutshell. Okay, so... So the pressure cooker, though, of, of going into a zone of where there's active hostility, I don't know how far away they would keep you from the actual hostility, but like, how does that prepare you to move into narrative, which is obviously not hostile, but it is a pressure cooker? Now, sometimes it's hostile. So first of all, you don't... Okay, let me give you an example. I'm walking in the streets, and I have an 11-year-old daughter right now. Oh, wow. And... Uh, if I hear something I don't like, I run the other way. Yeah. If I had a camera and I was a news cameraman, and I run that way. Yeah, yeah. Stores the noise. So you balance your personal life and your, your uh, professional life. How does it prepare you? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think adrenaline is the best feeling there is. And at the same time, you have to be very, very conscious that it's a drug like any other drug. So yeah. don't overdo it and have coffee before. And have something to eat. Um, I think the, the pressures of a set are pressures that are very contained and very humane, and they all, most of them are related to finances. So, if you are doing a documentary and you make a mistake, you may portray somebody's life in the wrong shadow, and that's unfair. If you're on a set of a movie and you make a mistake, it's gonna cost someone some money, and that's about it. If we don't get the shot because the sun set, we'll come back tomorrow if somebody wants it. So the pressure exists, but it has to be limited to a reality check. So what, uh, how did you make the transition from doing news into doing more narrative stuff? I sort of was never wanted to be a news cameraman. I just fell into that, and I ended up, ended up being good at it, I guess. Uh, but I never chased that career as a profession. I always wanted to do narrative. I always wanted to do 
quote unquote art or music videos. So, well, if I can back up though, so you started as an architect and you were offered this job, on, you know, on you know doing travel and adventure and, and all that stuff. We're trained to do an, to be an AC. When did the light bulb go over your go off over your head and you're like, you know what? I love this camera stuff. I want to I want to be a cinematographer. Five minutes later. Really? Literally. You're like, screw architecture. I'm done. Oh yeah. I remember being in the back of a pickup truck with a my cameraman at that point and it was three days after that and i said to him this is it i'm not doing anything else really yeah and i and my family doesn't have any i mean i watch movies like everybody did but it wasn't like my father was a cinematographer or a photographer or anything they, they have artistic uh inclinations but nothing nothing related to film so so uh does the architecture study that you did did that end up in any way informing your creative work in this field? If I had to start again, I'll probably go to architecture school. First of all, architects don't build walls. Architects build spaces to, for people to live in. DPs don't light walls. DPs light spaces. When you are in a set and you see the flow of the set, if the, set, if the flow makes sense, it's great. In a house, if the flow makes sense, you can go from the kitchen to the living room in a very natural way. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work for a house or it doesn't work for a set. It's very, it's very symbiotic. You learn a lot, a lot about colors. You learn a lot about floor plans. You learn a lot about motion and, 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 and geography. So I would highly recommend art or some kind of art form. Architecture is great. I mean, architecture just seems like really specialized and really specific. Yeah, um, if you eliminate the, 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 the logarithmic thing about how many bricks you need for the house not to fall, it's very <laughs> artistic. How many is that? Just, in, just uh, 28. Oh, good, good, good. It's good to know. So, uh, so you start working for CNN, and you, your transition, if I'm not mistaken, was music videos, right? Or you, yes. You did a lot of music videos. Uh, well, my earlier transition was I got burned out from news, and, and not personally, but the whole the whole universe or ecosystem changed with basically the first Gulf War where CNN became a 24-hour network. They were already, but not really. And um, you were not chasing a story. You were chasing a fragment of a story to fill those five minutes after the soccer game or the football game. Okay. So I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in, in, in telling longer stories or human stories. I was living in Argentina at that point. Um, and I learned that they didn't have any Steadicam operators. So a friend of mine and I, myself, bought a Steadicam. I became a Steadicam operator. Oh, wow. And I did Steadicam for a few years. And one thing led to the next one. I was on a set, and they needed a second unit DP, so I did it, and I moved to Mexico. I did three or four movies as a Steadicam operator there. And at the same time as a second unit DP and then an opportunity to do a music video with Ozzy Osbourne. Which one was it? Uh, Please oh say God. Bark at the Moon. Please say Bark at the Moon. No, oh. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to Prague and we shot it. And oh, wow. uh, he got an MTV award. Oh, sweet. So, But like, so what year is this? This is, this is uh, like... 93. 
Oh, it's 93? Uh, oh, okay. I, I had it wrong. I thought that you were uh, working a little bit earlier. No, in the music 90, video. 93, 94, 93, 94, okay, 94 cool. actually. Yeah. I would say, I mean, like, you know, obviously, like 10 years earlier was like the birth of music 80. videos mainstream, but in the 90s, they were getting really interesting and experimental with them. Yes, and very, very, it was a very free medium. It was a very creative, free medium. I mean, it was about the, the record label, the only thing they really needed was for the song to play and then the directors were free to do more or less whatever they wanted some of them did wonderful things some other ones didn't you know but i just remember that like that period you, you see a lot like you'd see a technique like for instance uh, speed ramping in camera and you'd see it in a music video and then you know a year later it would be in a giant blockbuster movie or you take or you use swing and tilts in a music video Shifting, and, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and you end up shooting movies with swing and tilts uh, you, you take you know, scratch the neck and, and, and you know, yeah. you, you, you put some sand in the, in the gate <laughs> and you scratch the neck in music videos and all of a sudden that becomes a trend. It yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, it just seems like, it was, like there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of like really artistic, uh, clever, creative stuff going on. Yeah, and there were the constraints of budget and time and etc. but it was very free. It was extremely rewarding. Uh, so how long do you find yourself in the music video world then? My first narrative project as a director of photography was 98, a movie for Paramount, a small little movie. Uh, mm -hmm. So I ended up commercials and music videos for five years. Not bad, not bad. And was it the music video work that propelled you into movies? Were you always trying to move into movies or were you enjoying I, kind of your I've, time? I've been, I've been lucky enough to be responsible enough to <laughs> change. As soon as someone wants to pigeonhole me, Hollywood has this fantastic ability to say, Oh, you're a great DP for beer, so you'll do all the beer commercials. Oh, my God. Oh, you'll do cars. You know, uh, the classic question is, oh, has he shot kids? I'm like, okay, I have a baby legs, I have a small tripod, so I can shoot kids. <laughs> it's the same as shooting adults, but lower, you know. So every time somebody wants to say, wanted to say to me, oh, your music videos are great, so I, I would try and get a commercial. Yeah, yeah. Or a guy could go away and run away like the plague and go out to a documentary for six months. So were you at that time, like, what were you thinking was going to be the future? Were you moving towards making features, documentaries? Was Like, what was in your head at that time? I sort of always wanted to, to be a, a, a feature uh, director of photography. Always. A drama, like a long-form director of photography. I like to tell long stories. I like to tell stories that have an arc. Even from back when you were doing the, uh, yes, the new stuff. Definitely, definitely. So did you, and, and I think that this is like an important thing for people to think about, who, you know, who might be listening to this who are at the beginning of their career. Uh, were you looking at it and kind of uh, uh, strategizing? Like, okay, so I'm going to do this news thing, but while I'm doing it, I'm going to start working oh, on Oh, no, group. I'm South American. I don't think more than three days ahead. No, 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 no. That's a very Anglo thing. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. No, uh... No, I would take a day at a time. I, I, I thought, I think everything is a way to go to the next step. Like everything I've done in my life took me forward, propelled me forward. Yeah. And sometimes it propelled me lateral and sometimes it propelled me backwards. But there is some movement always. Uh, music videos, I think it were great. I would have never do music videos the rest of my life. Thank God, because they don't exist anymore. Not in the same way, that's for sure. Not in the same way. Or um, I was never too enamored with commercials because I, I don't understand the, the importance of a spoon of mayonnaise. 
You know, I really don't. And people, I mean, make a living out of it, and that's very respectful. I just don't get it. Um, you know, I, I, I think a documentary is fascinating and more important because you can change people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Or you can show people's lives. You tell stories that people aren't going to hear. So to me, to me, it was always a way to get into, into the long form. And sorry, by long form, I also mean episodic uh, or like a like a series nowadays Netflix or Amazon or whoever a series so like it's like a long form, form. Yeah. doesn't necessarily restrict today 20 years ago long form was a feature in a theater period, exactly or in a television today a long form means a plethora of things but also like today like you know a, a long form TV series they, they look as good as any movie or <clears throat> or better <laughs> <laughs> um so, so let's talk about like when you made that leap into into doing uh, narrative narrative features from the music videos. Like, what what was what got you in the room? What uh, like how did how did you make that leap, career wise? I was friends with a friend that had a friend that was the friend of the director, <laughs> and I ended up being in the right place at the rap party and say, "Listen, you want me to shoot your movie?" We had a meeting. And I already had a career as a cinematographer. I had two MTV awards and, yeah. and some And also at this point, you've worked with dozens, maybe hundreds of directors. Correct. And this was a project about a family with some very weird, you know, monkeys turn very wild and try to kill people. And they wanted sort of this yeah, that old look. that old saw the, the exactly. family movie about monkeys. yeah in an island in an island okay in, that you cannot escape because the last boat just left oh man so and the audience is saying please 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 don't go but you see the captain going that way and everybody getting <laughs> distracted by re the monkeys re real monkeys or puppet monkeys I cannot spoil that to you oh, okay. puppet monkeys <laughs> <laughs> and one thing led to the next one and after that I did a, a role and there was a good a good, a good run of pejorative we used to call the movies of the week it wasn't really movies of the week it was movies for television you know so they had a decent budget they have a decent timing and and after that i did some independent movies in the states and in south america and in mexico and then uh i met my wife in mexico she's a director we've done seven movies together sweet uh, what's that like working with your wife uh you know that that relationship you can keep this in the podcast. I can keep this. I can. Yeah, you can. Let me ask you a question. Are you married? I am married. Okay, so you take the trash out on Wednesdays. Well, yeah. Yeah. So you put gas in the car. I do, yes. Okay, I do exactly the same. I just get paid to do that. <laughs> the director is the boss. The yeah, director yeah. is... You get married to a director as a cinematographer. You, it, that's a marriage. Yeah. Because you, you have to like the same things. You have to love the same things. And then after six weeks or 12 weeks or 23 weeks, you divorce. I just have the advantage of not divorcing and doing the next movie. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. You've done seven movies together. Yeah, I think so. We, wow. we we're doing one next year. and with The last one we did together. Uh, we did three pilots together this year. So That's incredible. I mean, my wife and I are both in the business, and we have worked together on a few projects, but... Seven full features, that's, that's quite a bit. Well, I also believe in, in the, the filmmaking, it's a, it's a vertical relationship with a lot of liberty and a lot of freedom. So once you understand that the director 
the movie belongs to the director, it doesn't belong to anybody else, yeah. then it's very simple to assume that you try, you try and do the best for them to have the most successful movie. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny, everybody asks me how to work with your wife. To me, it's more natural than working with you. Makes sense. I mean, this, this actually brings me to a question that I sometimes ask and sometimes don't. If you were to create the perfect director in a laboratory to work with you as a cinematographer, what kind of preparation do you want a director to come in with? Like, what's, what's the best way, what's, what's a way that if a director was going to work with you to get the most out of you? Do you like someone who, who comes in with the full shot list or who develops the shot list with you or does storyboards on their own or leaves you to come up with coverage? Or like, what's your favorite way to work? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, I actually will turn it around. Oh, I will right. go to the director and ask, what do you want from me? Yeah. What do you need from me? Because I can give you this, that, and that. Yeah. But if you only want a lighting cinematographer, I may not be the guy you need. Because there are guys that do that better than me. Yeah. I would love to be able to talk about framing. I would love to be able to talk about poetry. I would love to be able to talk about script and love and, yeah. and things like that. So if you want that, I'm here for you. If you only want a guy that he will tell you 2.8 and it looks great, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get really bored very quickly. Yeah. So I may not be the right guy. Uh, and I've done it a couple of times, honestly, saying, I don't think, I think you, you need someone else. Yeah. Um, in a commercial or in a short form, it's okay. I can suffer or you can suffer as my director, my, my inabilities for Well, a in a week. commercial, a lot of times they have everything like meticulously boarded out and exactly. you're, you're there so, to execute. So, but a feature is six months of my life. Yeah. So I'm not going to suffer for six months of my life. So I'm not, and you shouldn't either. Uh -huh. So, but to answer your question in a perfect world, if you have a lot of money, we can make all the mistakes we want because someone is going to pay for that. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't have enough resources, and don't get me wrong, there are never enough resources. Of course. Let's prep it very well. Let's talk about this at nauseam because then we won't have time on set to talk about anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So prep, prep for me is the most precious time. And actually, to quote a cinematographer friend of mine, prep is the only time you're really creative. After that, you become... The, the, the general manager of the next Costco, you know, to see how many boxes come in and how many boxes got out. Okay, so, like, what are the things that you tend to, like, what are your priorities in prep? How, how do you, what is your process in prep? The most quality time I get with a director is when we read the script together. Mm -hmm. Whether he reads it, I read it, somebody else reads it. And it's like, okay, what do you think here? What, what is the feeling here? What do you think is going to happen? How do you see this? You know, or what is the arc of this character? Is he really that bad or is that bad because he was abused as a kid? You know, so, so that will give you clues as a cinematographer because yeah. going back to the audience, which at the end of the day is what we all serve. We serve an audience. You know, the audience is the ultimate judge of our work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and without undermining the critics, but at the end of the day, that theater that stand up in a standing ovation or that theater that leaves halfway <laughs> to the movie is what makes your life. Uh, I think at the end of the day, what is the most important thing is the time you spend to, with the director trying to understand where his mind is and what his fears are and what his, and how could you can complement that marriage yeah. to make the best out of it. And, and like when you're working with a director, at what point do you, do you start talking about 
the creative approach that will inevitably lead to a series of technical decisions you're going to have to make about cameras and whatever the stuff we don't want to talk about. But uh, but like, what's the where do you bring in th that like? Okay, at the beginning he's wearing green, at the end he's wearing red. At the beginning we're going to backlight him, at the end we're going to frontlight him. What like those ideas? It's so depending on the project. It is so depending on the directors. Yeah. If, he, if I had my way, we will read the script as a, as a story, as a novel, in, yeah. which, in which I would take ideas and say, okay, what is the arc? What, what's happening in her brain right now? Who's, the, the most important question is, whose scene is this? You know, there are yeah. like three characters, and allegedly it's the scene of the guy that is standing talking, but... The truth is that those words that the guy that is standing talking are changing the character is sitting in the back. So this is actually her scene. Yeah, yeah. But nobody knows that other than the director or the writer. So that's uh, ideally you start very early this process. But every director is different. You know, you work with directors that don't really want to talk about that because they learn that on the day in the scene. Yeah, yeah. And they want to talk about wardrobe colors and wall colors, and that's fine too yeah yeah but it depends on them you, you you basically you're basically are a sponge of information and if that's information come er, the earlier it comes the easier it is, it is to react if i'm in a set and i finish lighting and you come to me and you told me oh i thought it would be night and i go like yeah but the script says day <laughs> oh we changed that on the last rewrite yeah and i'm like well i never got the last rewrite nobody got it so this is night. Well, it's gonna cost you two and a half hours worth of your time, not my time. You know. Yeah, yeah. So the earlier, the earlier we we, we solve those things, the earlier, the, the better the result is. Yeah, yeah. No, that totally makes sense. So uh, the question that's been burning in my mind since I since I heard we were gonna have you on here, when and how do do you come into Guillermo del Toro's uh, orbit? Uh, one of the best living directors, hands down. I am a very good friend of Guillermo Navarro. Oh, yeah. ASC. Yeah. So, Guillermo del Toro did many movies with Guillermo Navarro. And we are from the same orbit. My wife is from Guadalajara. I know of Guillermo. He knows of me and this and that and the other. Um, Guillermo Navarro was shooting Pacific Rim. And Pacific Rim became such a big, big, big movie that they needed an alternate unit, not a second unit, like the other unit, to be able to shoot what the first unit couldn't shoot. Yeah. So I don't know how he did that. Guillermo del Toro was waking up at four in the morning being with us, the other unit, the B unit, but it wasn't B because Guillermo was there. He was with us from six to 11. At 11, he'll go to first unit, sort of rehearse, come back and shoot. So we shot it in tandem. So we, I wow. basically shot the other unit. Of course, for technical reasons, it's called the second unit, but it wasn't really a second unit. We never shot a frame without Guillermo. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not like we did the action and they did the drama. I think that that's not super uncommon. Like uh, we had uh, Jaron Prezon on here and he uh, works for Ryan Johnson yeah. uh, under Steve Yedlin. And he's technically second unit, like he was second unit on, uh, on uh, not The Force Awakens. Uh, yeah, no. Star Wars probably? Well, it's the newest Star Wars. Of, yeah, anyway. Uh, it's about the Jedi and the thing and the plane. Yeah, The Last Jedi. Yeah. All right, thank you. <laughs> and anyway, but yeah, so Jaron told us that basically Ryan Johnson directed both units and that they would alternate. And like while first unit was setting up something complicated, he'd go over and shoot with second unit. And I, you know, that's, that's a super legit way to do it. 
So after that project, Guillermo was developing his first uh, TV series called The Strain. Oh, yes, very familiar. I had done by then probably, I don't know, 15 pilots and 14 had been picked up. Nice. So Guillermo Navarro very generously said, why don't you try and, you know, check out the guy that was doing the other unit? And Guillermo laughed and said, of course. So we had a meeting and uh, it was a very challenging project in Toronto. Uh, Guillermo had never shot in, two, in 15 days. So for him, it was a novelty. For me, it was not usual, but it was very, very uh, big for 15 days. But I thought we could do it maybe in 16. And sure enough, we did it in 16 days. So that's how I entered the Guillermo del Toro orbit. And I mean, that, that show has a look that I think is, is like, it's something that I, I immediately would associate with uh, Guillermo del Toro, which is, it's like, very brightly lit, like a comic book, almost, almost kind of a thing. How did you go about developing that look for that show? Guillermo is very precise. Guillermo will go and say, no, that is not cyan enough for me. Really? Oh, yeah. And the light should be pulsating at a higher ratio. Wow. Yeah. And at the same time, he will talk to an actor about ceilings and to the special effects guy about the density of the block. He is a renaissance man. Totally. He knows, he knows, you can put a bip on it. He knows his shit like nobody else I've seen. Oh, we, we curse left and right on here. On yeah, it's, it's, he is, I mean, and you can see it in his movies, you know, and they of all course. have a soul and they all have his own, he, he talks about it. You know, I created my own monsters. I bring my monsters and I love my monsters. Um, so I did the pilot and then I had to do something in between because my wife was directing a movie, the 33, the Miners movie, the Chilean uh -huh. Miners movie. So I went away for like three months and then I promised I would come back and I came back for the last two episodes of the first season. Wow. So and uh, was that the first series that you had shot that many episodes on? Because you've done a number of pilots. I've, I've never done more than one episode. True Blood, I did number one and number two. Nice. And that was it. Then, then the strain. Everywhere else, I just do the pilot and I run as fast. Sorry, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't continue the process. But I mean, well, did, did you enjoy uh, moving from doing uh, mostly features at that time to doing uh, something where you where you had a longer time to live with the characters and to develop the story? I don't think it was a choice. I think I fell into it like I fell into news, like I fell into everything else in my life. Yeah. I, I, I like pilots because they're a mini movie. Yeah. Imagine, usually a pilot is 12 days, 13 days, or an hour, whatever, 58 minutes. So it's, you're shooting a movie in 28 days, so, which is fantastic. So you get in, you be creative, there is a lot of adrenaline, the pace is super fast, and then you get out of it. And you're also like setting the look that other people are gonna have to kind of follow your tempo. Hopefully, hopefully, sometimes, some colleagues of mine will share my, there is a document that I leave at the end that very loosely we call the Bible or yeah. whichever incarnation of a religious uh, <laughs> book you want to call it. Um, and hopefully that Bible is followed. Uh, there are some examples it happened, like Colony was one of them, which I did here in LA, uh, The Strain, True Blood, some other times. And not because I said the look, because the director said the look, because the writer said the look. That's the look of the show. But since you did multiple episodes of The Strain, uh, and you're working with different directors, so uh, um, were you sort of the, uh, the steward of the look 
as as uh, as uh, Guillermo del Toro had created it with you, uh, with, you know, like working with another director, like you, you're basically like, well, this is how it's going to look. Yes and no. Guillermo was, and mind you, Carlton Cuse, which is a very prolific writer, was a showrunner writer for that. So Carlton and Guillermo had a very cohesive conversation about the look and the director will come and be sort of told or address how it would look. Um, But at the same time, you want to give the courtesy to people to be creative because if not, then what do they do for a living so it, it, it is a very fine balance I don't I don't take ownership of if someone wants to change something unless it really goes against the whole mantra I mean like in the strain for example the, the, the sky of New York which is where the strain happens the sky of New York gets sort of milkier and milkier and uglier and uglier and uglier so you cannot shoot it's like sunny you can't shoot because it's not the look you know, so you wait a few hours, you go inside and you shoot in the afternoon where it's shadows. No matter how much you want to shoot right now, it, it won't look like the movie. So, and, and, and most directors, if not all of them, will be in communion with that because hopefully they've seen the pilot or they've seen the series and you come into something that has a look. And, it, and I'm, obviously I'm not unique. I mean, everybody that's done Game of Thrones looks like Game of Thrones, you know, yeah, yeah. with or without the... The, the, the Starbucks cup. <laughs> or the water bottle that was in the Or the water bottle. That yes. was insane. That's a whole, it's own, its own thing. Um, do you watch, like, uh, since you've done so many pilots, like, do you watch, like, say, an episode of True Blood three seasons down the road and think about how the echoes of the work that you did or think about how they kept ideas that were in the pilot uh, that far? Do you, do you follow them creatively if you're not working on them? I have to confess that since I started doing pilot, <laughs> Francesca, which is 11 or 12 now, was born. Uh-huh. So I was watched very little television other than Dora the Explorer, and then after that, uh, no. My, I my son just turned one, so I completely yeah. hear you. Yeah. I watch now. I, I, I tend not to watch my own work. Really? Well, I, I'll watch the pilot and the color correction, Obviously, and, well, then, yeah, and then that's about but it. But like, you don't watch it like. No, I will watch something I don't know how to do. I will watch the night manager because I'm like, oh my god, it looks great. Or I will watch something I haven't done. I don't tend to do that because there is nothing I can do. You know, it, if someone decided to make it look differently, hopefully for the best, then it's great. I'll watch it. But if someone, if it becomes a routine sort of machine, then I tend not to watch it. But it's not a conscious decision. It's Dora the Explorer. <laughs> so uh, let, let's also move to, and, I, and I, I don't don't obviously say anything you're not allowed to talk about, but your upcoming movie, It Chapter 2, which, uh, you know, I, I speak for all the horror fans, could not be more giddily excited to see. I just got a text from Warner Brothers telling me I cannot talk to you. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, First of all, it was an honor to fill the shoes of uh, my esteemed colleague, Chong, that did number one. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard because the fans adored number one. It's a a masterpiece. It's 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 a masterpiece. But Andy Muschietti, the director, which is a genius and I adore him, the first thing he told me is there is great opportunity because we have to... I'm not spoiling anything. There is the past, which is the kids at the age number one was. Yeah. And then there is the future with, with the adults, the Losers Club, 
20 something which years later. Which is a later. genius move on their part to make with the, to do with the films. So, and that's part of the book. I mean, I, I read I know the book, it's done in two but, parts, but, but like they didn't try and mush them into one movie. So, right? so they did that. So it was a, ch- a technical challenge to literally make today's kids in today's movie look like it was shot three years ago yeah, yeah. by that cinematographer. So I studied, I, I look at the movie, I screen it three times in, in deluxe. So I knew the movie inside out. Thank God part of the crew worked in the first one. So I had some insights and I was happy to literally mimic that movie. It was challenging because it's like, you know those painters that copy real paintings, you know? Yeah. You have to be as good as, I don't say Leonardo, but you have to be as good as the original. Yeah, yeah. And that was a challenge, but I was very happy to achieve it. But at the same time, in my little internal creative person that I still have somewhere, uh, between my soul and my wallet, there is this creative person in the middle. Uh, I had carte blanche to create this new look, which is completely different than number one because these are adults. Yeah, and, and, and it's a modern, a more modern. It's a, it's a contemporary. Yeah. And the fears of a kid are the fears of a kid. The fears of an adult are much darker yeah. or much, much more adult. So it was a... They're still afraid of clowns. Adults oh, are too. Oh, much darker, you know. <laughs> but it's and darker emotionally and darker lighting-wise. Nice, nice. And did you talk to the DP uh, of the first one at all? No, we didn't talk. Not for any choice. He was working, I was working, and yeah, I yeah. talked to the director. But no, he did an amazing job. And, and we used some different lenses, but with the same flair and the same taste. We used, but, but we followed the steps. So I'm hoping that when you watch the movie, the audience that recognize the kids and recognize the little like, redhead girl and you'll feel like you're watching the old movie or at least you're feeling that you're watching a part of the old movie that you never saw before like the scene after or the scene before yeah yeah like Beverly Beverly does something and you go oh that's of course when she left the house she did that in the other movie but I never saw it and I hope the hope my hope is to to, to make that a seamless and yet an homage to, to the other movie that was amazing it really is I can't wait to I can't wait to watch the original and then, like, hopefully the same day, go see your film. I told my daughter, when she, she asked me, when can I watch the movie? And I said, when you're 25. It's a really scary movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, a joke. But uh, it's a wonderful. I think Andy made another jewel. You know, the eat number one was a jewel. This is another jewel. I can't wait to see it. So I'd love to, uh, open, the, uh, I'd love to open the floor to questions. If you have a question, raise your hand. Ilya will come to you, and I will repeat the question and uh, we'll go ahead and uh, answer it. So the question, real quick, so we can have it on the recording, is how would you feel about somebody else uh, shooting a sequel to a film that you originated? First of all, for the last 32 years of my career, everybody has shot something I shot already because I do pilots and then they do the series, and I'm very proud of what people do with my work. And I don't think this is a sequel. Uh, I think this is a different movie. You know, this is a completely, this, there are adults and their kids. But I, if there is a need three, and, and either the director chooses to use someone else because it's about the North Pole and everybody lives in this white environment that I'm from South America and I'm very good at warm things, I'm fine with that. My ego, I think it's, 
I think you're serving the product. You're serving the actual movie. You're not serving necessarily your feelings about the movie. I don't have any feelings about that. I have feelings about what I do today. I don't have, I don't get attached. I get emotionally attached, of course, but it's not my movie. It's, it's a director's movie. It's his movie and he has all the right to, to do as much as he wants or can to make it a better movie for the audience. So I hope, you know, better cinematographers than me do the number three, you know. That, I, I that, hope that would, a musical. I think they should do it as a musical. That, that will, I'll cross my fingers that, that you know, Bob Richardson or, or someone <laughs> like that wants to do it chapter three. It will be an honor for me to go to the set and learn. <laughs> uh, do we have any other questions? Uh, so, the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The question is, uh, what skills from architecture specifically are you applying to cinematography on a daily basis? In, in, in my specific case, and it's different with everyone because other DPs come from different backgrounds. In my specific case, I find it extremely useful because of the how to read how to read a space. It's it's a skill that you're. There is no architect in the world that does not understand flow of space, color, size, and volumes. And that's what cinematography is. It's the flow of a scene. If you put the kitchen in the wrong place, you'll bump into the refrigerator every single time. If you put a scene in the wrong place, the actor will bump and it doesn't flow and your coverage multiplies by three. So I think it's a wonderful... In my, I'm not suggesting don't go to film school and go to architect school. But if you're an architect that wants to be a filmmaker, I think it's fantastic. Those skills are great. Here's a way to split it. Uh, is, is there like an architecture book or, an, or a specific architect or uh, anything about architecture that you would recommend cinematographers read to get, to get that perspective that they could maybe put into their work in some way? Uh, there is a book that it's called How to Read Art, read as per reading art. I, the, the name, the, the author escapes the name, but any book that tells you the story of humankind through the eyes of building. You know, people used to die of pneumonia for many reasons, but they usually died of pneumonia in the urban environments because they used to build the fireplace and they all sit in front of the fireplace with the fire heating their chest, but their backs were really cold. So their lungs will have two temperatures. People won't die of didn't die of pneumonia in the American West with the teepees because the teepee was all hot because the fire was in the middle. So that kind of information applies to life and applies to filmmaking, you know, to everything. So anything that tells you the story of human urbanism, I think is fascinating. Or art, you know, painters. A cinematographer is nothing more than, than the, the, the guy in the caves taking a little chinchilla and, and making it small and making it red and taking a finger and drawing a bison, you know? We're like that. I mean, the canvas is different. The canvas is the TV you have behind you as opposed to a rock or as opposed to Picasso or as opposed to Leonardo. And I'm not comparing myself to any of those. But the canvas is the canvas. You just need to know how to paint on it. Cool. That's great. Um, oh, we got another question. Come, come on up. So the question is currently, what is your largest source of inspiration? That's a very good question. I think hunger. I think, <laughs> I think that 
I'm hungry to learn every day something different. I'm hungry to go in a trip and go to what, see a museum. I'm hungry to, to, to understand what's happening with these, technically with new set of lenses or cameras or whatever. But I'm very hungry to understand what is the next narrative that we need to tell. I'm hungry to try to explain to myself what is the next movie I want to watch. You know, it's like, is it, is it a, a version of all the president's men? Is it that or is it, is it the next? You know, I, I'm hungry of, of learning. And the day I stop learning, I'll open a restaurant. I'm a better cook than a DP, so I'll do fine. So, well, let's, let's end because you were actually, before we started recording, you were kind of tell, uh, comparing what you do to being a cook. And, uh, and I think it's something that I, that's, that's a, great, a great place for us to end on. When, when I start my, not that I do it all the time, but I, I do a few master classes. So I, I go into a master class and I have my light meter case and I have this really weird brown sort of shoe box that I open towards the, the students or towards the audience so they don't know what I'm taking out. And I say, these are the tools of a cinematographer. And I take a tomato, I take oregano, I take a little bottle of olive oil, and I take a few herbs, put them in front, and I say, these are the tools of a cinematographer. We are, I think, we are chefs. Everybody goes to the same supermarket. We all go to Ralph's, and we all buy tomatoes, and we all buy organic something, and we all try to make our best. You give five chefs the same ingredient, and we'll, they'll do completely different tasting things. You'll give five DPs the same set, the same script, the same tools, and we'll do a completely different movie because it doesn't matter what the tomato is. What it matters is how do you slice it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't, sorry, it doesn't matter what camera you use or what lenses you use. And it does, but it doesn't because at the end of the day, what matters is who am I and what's my background and what did I grow up with. I was, I grew up, you know, this is an old, old, old ana uh, analogy in English. Analogy? It's an old comparison, sorry. You know, everybody used to say Fuji was slightly greener and Kodak was slightly warmer. Well, there is a reason. Fuji was developed in Asia for a particular skin tone that had a particular reflection of light. So you had to add a touch of green to have this marble, beautiful ivory skin. Kodak was developed in the western part of the United States, well in Rochester, but developed for westerns where everything is red and everybody's under the sun. Yeah. So nothing wrong with either or, it's just different. And it's the same, by the same token, every camera is different and every DP is different. So it doesn't matter. We're like chefs. Just come to my table and you'll eat semi-Italian Peruvian. You go to Chivo's table and you eat Mexican. Yeah. You know, so I think everyone brings his own stuff, should bring. Hopefully, we can bring our own experiences and our own love and try not to overcook it or cook it too early or because then you get in trouble. <laughs> so uh, before you go, uh, where can people find your work online? Where can people see your work? Twitter, website, uh, I Instagram? I have an uh, Instagram account. Check out what is it. I have my website and... Uh, I have, I have a lot of friends that, actually, you know what, where you can find my work, go September 6th and watch uh, IT, Chapter 2. I'm very proud 
it's a very it was a very hard movie. I was nine months away from my family. Oh, wow. um, not that that matters. I could have been nine days, and it will still be a great movie. And it's my problem to be away of my family, not the audience problem. <laughs> but uh, I'm very proud of it. September sixth, definitely. I will be so going. I think to September sixth. Cool. Thank you so much for being on here. It was great to meet you. Thank you so much. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.